New writing. New writing. New writing. New writing. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, award-winning author Sarah Perry introduces her novel Melmoth, a chilling and deeply moving book that speaks urgently to our times. Sarah is in conversation with Professor Simon James of Durham University. Um, Good evening, everyone, and welcome to... uh, Durham Book Festival tonight in uh, Durham Town Hall. My name is uh, Simon James. I work at uh, Durham University, and it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Sarah Perry um, this evening. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very Uh, much, and thank you for coming. (laughs) Um, As I'm sure I need to remind um, nobody here, uh, Sarah is the author of uh, three novels, After Me Comes the Flood, uh, the uh, the Essex Serpent, which oh, I, can't the, I can't believe that title almost deserted me just for a moment. It's been living <laughs> in my head for two years. Uh, which was um, an enormous bestseller, was Waterstone's uh, Book of the Year and has been read a certain, uh, by, by um, 500,000 and I'm sure by now uh, you know more people. Um, Sarah's third novel is Melmoth and she's agreed to come and uh, talk to us about, about Melmoth tonight. So... Um, how do you follow um, a book uh, like The Essex Serpent? Um, pretend it never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's really important, well, it was for me at any rate, uh, to write with sincerity to what the, sto- the story that you had to tell rather than with an eye to some kind of slightly spurious attempt to repeat what had happened. Um, and I knew that I wanted to carry on exploring the Gothic, but in a very different way. Um, so... In order to not be kind of crippled by it, I had to sort of just close the door, say that was wonderful, I'm really glad it happened, and now we go right back to the beginning and we begin again. Mm. And is the change in setting a part of a, a conscious effort? Because I think you're, a, you're wonderfully evocative around, around place, so um, 19th century uh, Essex in, yeah. uh, in the Essex Serpent and, uh, and modern-day Prague in the new book. Definitely, and I, I realise that um, I am incredibly keen on writing about sense of place in a way that makes place a character. So mm-hmm. um, I, whether Norfolk in After Me Comes a Flood or Essex in The Essex Serpent, creating a sense of atmosphere so strong that it can propel the narrative just as much as introducing a new character might do. And I began working on Melmoth, and actually it was principally set in East Anglia again because I'm kind of saturated in the mists and the marshes and the flint churches <laughs> and of my flatland home. Um, and then I thought, no, you're, you said you were not going to be complacent. You said you were not going to tread water. You need to move not only to a different style, uh, but to a different location. And so the opportunity came up to be the writer-in-residence in Prague for a couple of months. Ah. And I thought, this, this will be the impetus that I need mm. to grapple with a different kind of Gothic sense of place. Oh, that's what. So you, you sort of. It was a, a redraft or a, a change no, of mind. No, I haven't really done. I, I have a very, very particular and very faintly lazy way of writing, <laughs> uh, which is to do naff all for two years, <laughs> um, uh, while I have the idea circling in my head and <laughs> getting richer and getting stronger. And I always begin writing at the moment a book feels like a book that I've read several times, and I'd like other people to read it, but I have to write it first. So I hadn't actually begun any scribing at all, but mm. had imagined it once again out on the marshes with maybe Melmoth kind of coming out of, of the misty water with kind of salt on her feet. And then I thought, oh, you're doing it again, love. Um, <laughs> and so the opportunity came up to be this writer in residence. And I realised that 
the, the Prague Gothic, the architecture, is very different from kind of the British Gothic or from the Gothic countryside. Yes. And I thought it would be a way to continue to drive myself forward. Yes, that is, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And I've, that's already, that's two things that I would have expected are co completely uh, the reverse. I think I have, certainly I have students who have a similar approach to writing, uh, for <laughs> writing nothing at all until the point at which it yeah, really yeah. does need to yeah. be, need, need to be, to be handed in. Yeah. Because um, uh, your books are so, are so rich in, in the textness of, of text that they're, that they're composed of documents. I mean, one of the um, my uh, day job is, is working with, uh, with 19th century literature, with Victorian literature, and yeah. one of the, um, uh, the, the, the writers that I was reminded of from your work is, is Bram Stoker, where a book like Dracula yeah, yeah. is composed of lots of documents put, put together, yeah. as, is, um, as, is, as is this one. Yeah. Um, but a lot of thinking needs to happen before the writtenness of that writing yeah. emerges. Yeah, and that was one of the great joys for me, because uh, writing for me is play, um, and, um, and also uh, it's a skill in the way that playing the piano um, can be mm -hmm. a skill, or woodworking is a skill. There's different things that you can do with your instrument. And so when I was planning Melmoth and thinking about the different manuscripts that I would write, um, I was thinking what fun it would be to have a letter written in 1637 and the kind of Lexus that you might use then. Um, and uh, a, a young girl's diary in the 1920s and how she might write. Um, and so I'm, it, it's, it's this idea of playfulness and also of kind of wrong-footing the reader. So one of the great joys for mm. me is where I list sources. Um, so the book contains a document that is uh, Melmoth Primary Sources and... Um, it brings together a list of things. And uh, I've had people say to me, I didn't know that Janacek had an abandoned opera about a witch. I didn't, you? <laughs> thought, thought you were an expert in classical music, but fine. Um, and someone tweeted me the other day and said, I'm just so delighted to see that, that you know, some Cornish mining ballads have made it into the book and all of this is made up. And there's actually <laughs> one, one, new, one major newspaper review hmm appears to think that Maturin's Melmoth draws on the old legend of a woman who denied seeing Christ, which, again, I made up. So um, <laughs> it's been a huge joy for me to kind of see how all that, all that textual play has had an effect on people. Well, it clearly, it clearly works. It, it clearly convinces. <laughs> uh, do you do much research to find those tones of voice or that, that sort of lexis? Um, I'm, no. Um, <laughs> so, another, another illusion uh, dashed. So, um, so my research was in fact, um, because the book deals with historical atrocity, so the research that I was doing was on uh, material fact about, um, for example, uh, a, I read a, re a Red Cross report on a British prisoner of war camp uh, in Cairo with Turkish prisoners in it. I read eyewitness accounts of atrocities committed against Nazi collaborators at the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Watched way too many sort of clips and saw too many photos of the Armenian genocide because that was the great kind of um, moral imperative, actually, to kind of do that accurately. But I don't really recall researching tone. Um, the, the letter written in 1637, I mean, I'm, I was brought up on, literally on the 1611 Bible, so writing in a 17th century Lexus is sort of, of 
kind yes. of comes quite naturally. Um, if anything, it's hard for me to write as modern as the 19th century. <laughs> I remember after the Essex Serpent, quite a few people saying, so tell me, how did you, how did you manage to write in that very old-fashioned style? And I was like, trust me, that's quite contemporary by my standards. <laughs> I think that, that makes sense because um, th there is a, a particular way of doing what's now called uh, the neo-Victorian writing, yeah. and the, which is, can be a very rich and very you know, pr yeah, productive yeah. genre, but it, it feels as if your work stands apart that doesn't have that, that sense of, 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 of pastiche or, or costume drama around Oh, that's it. really nice to hear. Thank you. I mean, um, I've, what I've done with Melmoth is like the inverse of what I did with The Essex Serpent. So with The Essex Serpent, the whole trick that I was trying to play was to write about the Victorian age in a way that made it feel modern. And what I've done with Melmoth is to try and write about the modern age in a way that makes it feel very ancient and strange. Mm. So, again, it's sort of um, constantly challenging myself to refine the craft in some way. And it, I like annoying people. So, you know, sometimes... <laughs> obviously, I would never dream of checking Amazon reviews. But if I had, um, <laughs> I would know that some people read The Essex Serpent and they say, oh, this is supposed to be a Victorian novel and it feels really modern. And I think, ah, you're really wound up. And then occasionally people read Melmoth and they'll say, it's supposed to be set in contemporary Prague, but everything feels really off mm. and really strange. So. <laughs> well, it worked for me. My, my <laughs> wife tells me I'm a very irritating person to watch historically set <laughs> costume dramas on TV with a tutting at anachronisms in hair or speech. Yeah. But I, it, it, oh, I, I, I didn't tut did once in, uh, so in, in either of, the, either of these, uh, <laughs> these, these novels. Um, you. Are you right when um, Helen is in um, the, the Philippines that um, foreign countries are both more foreign and more familiar than you think they're going to be? And I think you've managed to pull it off with the, with the Prague of, of Melmoth. Thank you. Um, I guess that comes down to um, a really intrinsic aspect of the Gothic, of, of, of being the uncanny. Mm -hmm. um, and so the duty, really, of the Gothic novelist is to affect this feeling of the uncanny on the reader. And obviously, the uncanny comes from the German unheimlich, and it means unhomely. So it's about writing about things in a way that seem really familiar, because we all know uh, what Prague's churches look like. We, you know, we have some idea of what Manila is like but somehow it's also really strange. Mm. Um, and that's kind of like key to evoking the Gothic sensation of never allowing the reader to ever quite relax because they think, hang on a second, you know, we're supposed to be in Bedford <laughs> or we're supposed to be in Prague and everything all feels slightly off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that makes a sense. I wanted to ask you one more question about characters before sure. asking you if you'd, if you'd read something yeah, from, the, sure. um, um, from the novel. Because something else that uh, surprised me is when you, you wrote in a piece in a newspaper that um, you're not one of those writers for whom the characters are, are real and sort of, you know, breathing into your ear as yeah. you're right. Because your characters seem so... Uh, seems so vivid that you inhabit them, even if we only see them in a, in a letter for, for ten pages. Or I was just saying before how much you devote a, a paragraph to the, to the heroine's parents, and a paragraph later you absolutely know them. Those who have read the book will know, will know the bit that I mean, that they seem completely recognisable. That's really kind. Thank you. I suppose what I always try to do is to uh, make everything do some hard work. Mm -hmm. So make the characters work hard to explore the themes that I want to explore to drive the plot forward in a certain way. So I never begin with character and think, if this person existed in this time, all of this stuff would happen around them. It's always the other way around. I want to explore this, and therefore I need an engine to drive the vehicle. But once I've worked out who they are, then I can begin to sort of feel quite intimate about them. Mm. So, for example, describing Helen's upbringing... 
How do you convey the idea of someone cowed and small, um, feeling that surely there must be something bigger than that? Then you think, well, her family must have done it to her, so therefore her parents needed to be that way. So I did a Radio 4 book club for the Essex Serpent a while back uh, with James Nocty, and uh, in the questions afterwards, this wonderful woman who was a huge fan of the Essex Serpent said, I just... I just love Cora so much. I just love her. Where did she come from? And I just went, oh, she's a plot device. <laughs> and like a, a horrified sigh swept the audience from left to right. It was really funny. And James Doherty was really horrified as well. And, it, and I, I need to kind of, I need to stop sounding quite so brutal because obviously I love her too. But mm -hmm. she began as, how do I explore ideas? Mm. Um, and she seemed a convenient way of doing it. So I'm really sorry. I'm so unromantic. <laughs> um, perhaps we could uh, hear a little uh, more about, uh, about Helen if you'd, if you'd like to read from the book. I'm going to stand. Um, I was brought up in a very uh, strict religious sect and nothing makes me happier than feeling like I'm in a pulpit. So, <laughs> Especially as having the misfortune to be female, I would not have been allowed to be in a pulpit in the church as I was brought up. But I won't preach, I promise. Um, I'm going to read from the opening and I'm going to read first uh, a letter, um, which is how the book begins, and then just a little bit of the opening of the novel in Prague. <clears throat> J.A. Hoffman, Care of the National Library of the Czech Republic, December 2016. My dear Dr. Prajan, how deeply I regret that I must put this document in your hands and so make you the witness of what I have done. Many times you said to me, Joseph, what are you writing? What have you been doing all this time? My friend, I would not tell you because I have been the watchman at the door. But now my pen is dry, the door is open, and something's waiting there that will turn what small regard you have for me to ruins. I can bear that well enough since I never deserved your regard, but I am afraid for you, because beyond the threshold, only one light shines, and it's far more dreadful than the dark. Ten days have passed, and all the while I have been thinking only of my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. I do not sleep. I feel her eyes on me, and with hope and dread I turn, but find I'm all alone. I walk through the city in the dark and think I hear her footsteps and find that I'm holding out my hand, but she offered me her hand once, and I doubt she'll offer it again. I leave this document in the custody of the library with instructions that it should be delivered to you when next you are at your desk. Forgive me, she is coming. J.A. Hoffman. Look, it is winter in Prague. Night is rising in the mother of cities and over her thousand spires. Look down at the darkness around your feet in all the lanes and alleys as if it were a soft black dust swept there by a broom. Look at the stone apostles on the old Charles Bridge and at all the blue-eyed jackdaws on the shoulders of St. John of Nepomuk. Look! She is coming over the bridge, head bent down to the whitening cobblestones. Helen Franklin, 42, neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair. On her feet, boots which serve from November to March and her mother's steel watch on her wrist. A table salt glitter of hard snow falling on her sleeve, her shoulder, her neat coat belted 
as colourless as she is, nine years worn. Across her breast, a narrow satchel strap. In the satchel, her afternoon's work, instructions for the operation of a washing machine, translated from German into English, and a green, uneaten apple. What might commend so drab a creature to your sight, when overhead the low clouds split and the upturned bowl of a silver moon pours milk out on the river? Nothing. Nothing, that is, but this. These hours, these long minutes of this short day, must be the last when she knows nothing of Melmoth. When thunder is just thunder, and a shadow, only darkness on the wall. If you could tell her now, step forward, take her wrist and whisper, perhaps she'd pause, turn pale, and in confusion fix her eyes on yours. Perhaps look at the lamp-lit castle high above the Voltava and down at White Swan sleeping on the riverbank, then turn on her half-inch heel and beat back through the coming crowd. But, oh... It's no use. She'd only smile, impassive, half amused, this is her way, shake you off and go on walking home. Helen Franklin pauses where the bridge meets the embankment. Trams rattle on up to the National Theatre, where down in the pit the oboists suck their reeds and the first violin taps his bow three stand times against the music stand. It's two weeks past Christmas, but the mechanical tree in the old town square turns and turns and plays one final pleasing strain of Strauss, and women from Hove and Hartlepool clasp paper cups of steaming wine. Down Carlovy Lane comes the scent of ham and wood smoke, of sugar-studded dough burned over coals, an owl on a gloved wrist may be addressed with the deference due to its feathers then gingerly held for a handful of coins. It is all a stage set, contrived by ropes and pulleys. It is pleasant enough for an afternoon self-deceit, but no more. Helen is not deceived, nor has she ever been. The pleasures of Bohemia are not for her. She has never stood and watched the chiming of the astrological clock whose maker was blinded by pins before he could shame the city by building a better device elsewhere, has never exchanged her money for a set of nesting dolls in the scarlet strip of an English football team, does not sit idly overlooking the Voltava at dusk, guilty of a crime for which she fears no proper recompense can ever be made. She is in exile and willingly serves her full life term, having been her own jury and judge. It's, um, it's such a, a wonderful um, piece of writing, and before I move on to ask you about the titular figure of, of the novel, um, it, it strikes me hearing that, that one of the... Um, the, the, the terms that often gets used in um, critical praise for your work is, is atmospheric, that all of your work has a wonderful atmosphere. But of course, atmosphere is not just something that you can summon into the air. The atmosphere comes from specific detail, from the, you know, from the owl and the, and the tourist tat and the, yes. and, and, and the weather. I was thinking about the vision of an opening of a Dickens novel like uh, Bleak, Bleak House yes. there too. So, uh, so, That's very flattering, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So clearly, the uh, you know the the uh, experience in uh, but but you, you I think you have an eye you you, you have an, an eye for detail. Does that are you how conscious are you in choosing which details you select in a passage like that? Um, I 
have a very odd eye, uh, which is best described as a man that I'm quite capable of getting lost trying to get home from the corner shop. Um, but I could describe in minute data, detail a strange bit of graffiti that I saw on the corner and the way a woman happened to be looking at me as I walked past. Um, and so I, my eye tends to hook on details which seem to me to be either very beautiful or a little bit off. And combined together, that's what creates a particular atmosphere rather than just a kind of a description of place. So, for example, in that passage, it was really important that the nesting dolls were in the scarlet strip of an English football team because it, that's not quite right. Why aren't they matryoshka dolls? Uh -huh. um, and putting in the detail about the maker of the clock being blinded by pins. So... What I always try to do is to just every now and then to very slightly subvert the thing that you've just described because then the reader is constantly alert and the reader is in communion with you rather than just passively sitting back. Mm. And I think actually music has a big role to play because um, if, you, if, you, if, the, if the language and the cadence has a lull or a, an impetus, that actually builds atmosphere too because you're, you, f you feel kind of slightly swoony when, you know, writing like that is at its best, which incidentally this isn't. But, you know, that's what I'm <laughs> aiming for is that feeling of um, musicality to lift people out of the everyday and into a completely different place. That makes sense. I can, uh, can hear you, well, I think one can hear you, you weighing the words as that, you know, that it reads aloud well. I think it was, um, this is going to be a book at bedtime on Radio it 4. It is, is that, yeah. That's, oh, that's yeah. wonderful. We'll look, look, look forward to that. That's yeah. great. Uh, it's going to be a lovely, cosy <laughs> nighttime read to just drift you off. And I, I almost write an iambic pentameter, I think uh, possibly because of my upbringing. Uh, um, in fact, I tweeted earlier today about something over emotional about the wind. And then for the rest of the train journey was really bothered because it was nearly an iams and not quite they had an extra foot it was really irritating that there was a trochee inside my nice tweet so it's just it's in me to try to write with that rhythm and i think that the first word of that main section is is look which of course is not perhaps i'll try not to give give too much away <laughs> not the first time that particular voice within mm. the book instructs the reader to um you know to, to do something but i think it does it does put us immediately immediately there yeah thank you so i wonder if you could say a little um again i've been thinking all day about how much to ask because um uh secrecy is such a, a theme of your of your of your writing that uh, if i um stand here and then um you know ask you know, half a dozen <laughs> questions that are utter spoilers. I, you know, I, I won't leave uh, this evening a very, a very popular man, but I wonder if you could um, begin to sketch in um, the figure of, of Melmoth. Who is she? Um, my Melmoth, and I, I say that to make her distinct from Maturin's Melmoth, which we'll talk about shortly, because the book is a tribute, really, to Charles Robert Maturin's Melmoth, The Wanderer, but it was very necessary for me to create my own Melmoth. And I had always wanted to write a great monster... And I'd always wanted to write a female monster. And so I made her female, and we can talk about gender stuff at any point you like. Um, but So she's, she's a woman, and she was one of the company of women that went to Jesus' tomb and found it empty and ran to tell the men. And they said to the men, he's risen, he's not here. And the men didn't really believe them. And so Melmoth was the one woman who denied it. And because of her denial, of her failure of courage and her failure to bear witness, she's cursed to wander the earth until Christ returns, bearing witness to everything that is most distressing and most wicked. And she's desperately lonely and she's always watching. So when you feel 
the hairs on the back of your neck go up, that's Melmoth. And she knows what you've done, and she knows what you've said, and she still wants you. So she comes to people, and she shows them what they've done. All the little transgressions, or in the case of this book, the vast ones, and says, if everyone knew what I knew, no one would want you. But I do. I'm so lonely. Come with me. And she offers her hand. So people are given a choice. They give up all hope of redemption, all hope of grace, all hope of friendship, and consign themselves to Melmoth, or they insist on hope and they reject her. So it's a series of manuscripts of sightings of Melmoth. So Helen Franklin is in Prague. She has a guilty secret. Um, And um, she begins to hear about the legend of Melmoth, and she's given a set of manuscripts about sightings of Melmoth, and she starts to think that Melmoth is real and that Melmoth is watching her. I don't know about the rest of you there, but just for a moment in this wonderfully gothic setting here, it felt as if things got very slightly darker. Uh, this is no, um, no judgment on our wonderful technical crew. I'm sure this was completely an, 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 an impression. Uh, my very first event for Melmoth after publication was in Cheltenham. And I'm honestly not joking. At around about this point, a woman was taken ill and had to be carried out. <laughs> She's fine, or I wouldn't be relating that as an anecdote. Okay, Durham, the bar is the set bar now is for pro- pronounced bodily responses to yeah. uh, the, work of, the work of Sarah Perry. And just for the avoidance of all doubt, the, um, the witnessing in, in Jesus' tomb, is, this, is that from an apocryphal gospel, or is no, this all Sarah Perry? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there is, there is the company of women, but there's no, there's no denial... <laughs> it just makes me so happy. Um, yeah. And, you know, that is intrinsic to her femaleness because the big challenge when creating a female monster is not to stray into very crass essentialism and saying, you know, what I'm going to do is... So you have a choice, right? You either just write a monster and the pronouns happen to be female or you say to yourself, no, there will be something intrinsically feminine or female about this, this person and her story. And then you end up straying into territory of saying, well, you know, if this is a female monster, and then hooking all sorts of female qualities onto her. Mm. And so, for me, that institutionary legend of her curse is intrinsically female because it's a woman who knew she wasn't going to be believed by men. That's why she said no, because they weren't believed, and Mm. she was ashamed. And so her curse is very unjust, which means that the sympathies, I hope, of the reader are constantly switching all the way through because she's horrifying and you don't want her to come, but also you feel really sorry for her because none of this is fair. That's extraordinary. I mean, when I I teach, um, I, I find myself telling students that we still use myths, I mean, even modernists like, you know, Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde, they're current because we have a need for them, that they, they express something. Yeah. And here it seems the, the other way around because there is a cultural need, certainly um, without wishing to sail too far into these waters, for women to be believed. You know, let's, yeah. I think we can all agree yeah, yeah. that there is a, a problem <laughs> yeah. around that yeah, at the yeah, moment yeah. and you've, you've reverse engineered yeah, this, yeah. this myth in order then to drive the, yeah. to drive the novel. And um, I think that's the great challenge of writing... This sounds very self-regarding, but true gothic fiction, rather mm-hmm. than... I mean, there's lots of really great fiction around at the moment that is basically ghost stories, um, which I love and can't get enough of, and I, I read a great deal of it. But that's very different from the gothic, which needs to have a kind of urgency, um, and a, a modern urgency, and almost like an anger behind it for the emotions to work. So if you think about Frankenstein, which is obviously one of the great touchstones in my life, yes, it's a gleefully daft story about a creature that ends up selling well on ice flow. You know, it's like this extraordinary thing. But also, 
it's about the death of God. It's about man's inhumanity to man, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's angry. Um, and so that was the kind of challenge, was to give the reader something that would give them joy and the gothic sensation and fear, but also be very contemporary and, and quite cross. Yes. About lots of stuff. <laughs> That's very interesting, because I'm, I'm sure, um, I could, hand on heart, I'm, I bet that the majority of readers of gothic fiction are women rather than men. I suspect so, yeah. It's always been um, consumed. I mean, it's been, always been very, very popular, but it has tended to be consumed more by women. Um, you know, ask Jane Austen. <laughs> yes, know? indeed, yes. <laughs> so, like a lot of gothic texts, um, uh, this book does deal with the very worst things that human beings can inflict on other human beings. I mean, you just... Um, you know, touched earlier on on uh, you know on the on the Holocaust on um, the um, on the Armenian genocide. It's there just in the passage you read about the uh, the, the, the the blinding of the um, of the uh, of, of the clockmaker. But I think the book intertwines um, individual lives with these enormous historical movements too. There, there's a, a kind of small but significant part played by the refugee crisis in in one of the plot developments yeah. as, as 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 well. Um, again, do you? <laughs> Do you, have you ever attempted to kind of shy away from that or do you think, no, this is, I, I want to paint in these I, bold colours? No, that's a poor choice of no, metaphor, but do no, you know what I, I mean? Totally, um, I absolutely know what you mean. I think it's a really good question. And, and the honest answer is, five years ago, I might have shied away from it. And then the day before the Essex Serpent was launched in 2016 was the Orlando massacre. Do you remember the massacre in the nightclub in Orlando? Mm. And at exactly the same time, we were seeing poor hostages beheaded by ISIS in the desert. And you couldn't open your Twitter page without seeing another boatload of refugees drowning, unaided, unnoticed, unassisted in the Mediterranean, a few miles away from where people were going on their package holidays. And I felt I had to stop writing because to sit in a nice book-lined study, Mm. reading Tolstoy and thinking about my craft seemed the most self-absorbed and self-indulgent thing of really fiddling while Rome burned. And so I decided the only way I could carry on being a novelist was to make the novel count. And so Melmoth was designed to speak very directly, and it is fairly didactic, actually, Mm. very directly, very unashamedly to the way we live now, to our moral responsibilities, to the urgent need to bear witness. And atrocities that I write about are chosen for two things. Firstly, that they're denied or forgotten. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I went on front row, and just before we went live, the brilliant Samira Ahmed leant forward and said, incidentally, uh, it's BBC policy, I can't say Armenian genocide. (laughs) She said, you can say what you like, I can't say it because it's denied. And so we went live and she did this brilliant introduction and she said, and obviously you deal with the Armenian massacres. And then she sort of went like this. <laughs> and I said, the Armenian genocide, yes. And, she, and we carried on. Huh. It's, it's denied. Uh, nobody wants to hear that Nazi collaborators were tortured to death in the streets of Prague. Who wants to hear that? We know who the goodies and baddies were. We don't want to hear that German families were hoarded into Terezin the minute it was emptied of the Jewish, you know, the few remaining Jewish survivors. So it's a book about 
a responsibility to bear witness. Um, and, and it is about the way we live now. And so I inserted um, something that talks about our responsibility to refugees and what's happening in the Yoles Wood Detention Centre. That's a very brief passage. Every now and then I think, oh, God, that is so preachy. That's so... <laughs> you prig. <laughs> no one likes this sort of thing. Go and write a nice comedy of manners. But actually, no, I don't regret it. And I'm, I'm glad it has had this impact on people. Of, mm. I mean, I was saying to you earlier, in my first event, maybe the second or third woman in the signing queue put her book down and she said, please write, bear witness in my book. So it had had this really... And now I'd sign most of them with bear witness because readers have been extraordinary mm. in their response. And people come and ask me and say, well, what should I do? And I think, oh, no. Mm. I just, I've asked the question. I've not given the answer. But those parallels were... Deeply meant, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the ways in which the, um, the, the the spectacles of violence, that scene on the on the on the beach with the bodies, again, I those of you that have read the book will you know will know the bit that I mean is the one that really stands out in in my mind too is is that I think um, they're never they're never just a, a spectacle. It's not like a TV screen or or, or something. Um, pornographic, because I think you always you always root those through the through the body, through yeah. bodily experience. There's um, a moment in After Me Comes the Flood where the the main character says it feels as if, and I'm going to misquote this, sorry, but um, it feels as if someone has found the part of him that divides divides his body from his mind and has taken it out. And I think that happens in in other places in your um, in in your work too. Because one thing that you know all human beings have in common is that we all have bodies that yeah. have got things in in common. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking also here too about the extraordinary piece um, that you wrote for The Guardian about um, physical pain and painkillers yeah. and, and writing, which for those of you that haven't read, I know, can see some, some people have. It's, it's, it's one of the most extraordinary pieces I've read, I've read in the paper um, all year. I, I, I wonder, would you like to say a little, a little bit yeah, more about certainly. that? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and, it, and it had such a huge impact on the way I wrote this book. And it helped me settle this big moral question that I had, which is how do you write trauma in a way that doesn't make either the reader or the writer complicit in the trauma? So it's an almost impossible conundrum. Um, and I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And then I was plunged into really shocking pain, which I'm now thanks to a year of therapy, able to talk about without weeping, but I, I basically had to have spinal surgery because I ruptured a... I don't know why I'm laughing. I ruptured a disc so badly that the disc matter filled my spinal canal and pushed my sciatic nerve out of the way. <laughs> and, and disc matter is corrosive as well. So if you think about how bad toothache is, that's air touching a nerve. The sciatic nerve's the biggest nerve in your body and it was being corroded by matter. And on the MRI scan, you could see it bent like a cello string. I mean, it was just... It was just appalling, and it went on for weeks. And I was also high, because I was on tramadol and amitriptyline and codeine and tranquilizers and all of this stuff. And I was writing this book at the time, which I assure you is a very foolhardy thing to do when you're supposed to be recovering from spinal surgery. But there we are. Um, and so what it did was give me an insight into quite how savage bodily suffering can be. Mm. Um, and, to, and the pity that I felt for myself, because I'm not very brave flooded over into pity for others. So all those accounts that I'd read of Armenian genocide, of the burning of the Protestant martyrs in 1555, became personal. They, they weren't a spectacle that I was looking at. I sort of... I mean, I, obviously, there's orders of magnitude worse pain than I went through that these people suffered, but it became intimate. And I think that's how I, w I was able to write in a way that I hope isn't too prurient. Mm. I don't know that I've... 
fully succeeded to the satisfaction of my own moral <laughs> obligations. But it was about writing from the inside out and from my own understanding of, of the fact that there's some pain is so bad you would consign your entire family to oblivion just for half an hour's respite virtually. Yeah. I mean, you go insane. You actually... There's a reason why they say pain is maddening. It is, it's maddening. Um, and so the book is full of... It's a great read, as I say. It's, it's, <laughs> it's full of physical suffering. Um, yes. And I yeah. hope that I've been able to write it in a way which is morally responsible and evokes pity and compassion, not a delicious mm. desire to read more terrible things. Well, I think one of the... Sorry, I'll just ask one or two more professory questions yes, and then I'll invite <laughs> questions from the, from the audience too. Is I think you avoid the easy conclusion that suffering is necessarily redemptive mm. because I was also... Another 19th century book I was reminded of was Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, which is partly about characters who deny themselves even easy pleasures because they think that makes them closer to God or that this is how they've been yeah. brought up. And I think that you do get a sense that your book, would like, for all of that, would like your characters to be happier yeah. or to let themselves experience pleasure yeah. um, rather, than, uh, rather, than, rather than pain. Yes. Um, um, the, the, I honestly think the scene that gave me most joy, and I won't say who it is, but someone who has had almost no pleasure in their life at all, won't even eat nice food, eats some chocolate cake. And I had so much joy writing that because it was about the very, very, very simple joy of sugar mm. on your tongue. After, <laughs> after years and years and years of not even allowing yourself nice food. Um, and I'm not very good at disliking my characters. I feel great, <laughs> you know, plot devices they may be, but I love them all. Um, and so... I, you know, I didn't want any of them really, even even uh, the brothers, and I won't say more, but even the brothers, I couldn't quite um, make them suffer as much as perhaps mm. they should have done. Well, there is a, a compassion in the book, and I think there's perhaps a, a hard-won redemption too, but I think it offers the reader a... A choice. It does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, just the last thing, but I think perhaps I'll... I, again, you know, that's <laughs> sailing into spoiler, spoiler territory yeah. there too. Um, I, I, you did say, and I, I did want to, to touch on this, you said that you, the, the book is a, is a tribute to Charles, to Charles Maturin. Yes, so that yeah. there, is, there, is some, there, there is at least one uh, actual primary source yes, uh, there outside is. of yeah, this Yeah, so the real book. thing... Um, Charles Robert Maturin was this incredible character. He was a, an impoverished Irish vicar. And the reason he was impoverished was because the church so disapproved of his writing that they kept cutting his stipend, basically in the hope that he would defrock himself and go and do something else. And he was so poor that visitors would find him literally starving but wearing very beautiful clothes. And uh, he was so cross about everything and about his station in life that he wrote to Walter Scott, who was a friend of his, and said, I will out-Herod all the Herods. And he said, I'm going to write the most depraved, dreadful, horrific book you've ever read in your life. And he succeeded. So in 1820, Melmoth the Wanderer was published, and it's a fantastically convoluted matryoshka doll of narratives, which I, I am an avid viewer of horror films and read as much horror fiction as I can get my hands on. It is, by a country mile, the most upsetting thing I've ever read in my life. But it's also sexy, funny blisteringly angry about things, incredibly clever. It's a huge wild ride. It's extraordinary. And, and it's many academics see it as being the last true Gothic novel of, like, of, the, of the golden age of the Gothic, sort of almost ending in 1820. And um, when I read it doing my PhD, and 
almost halfway through the book, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a tribute to this and I'm going to make Melmoth a woman. And then didn't do anything about it for years because I'm lazy, so... <laughs> I don't think so, but uh, <laughs> perhaps um, we will see if... Now, we have, I think, I, at the back, I can see the volunteers are revving up uh, the wandering mic. So even if you're sat right at the front, if you could use a mic so that everyone can, uh, can hear you. So uh, who would like to ask uh, Sarah a question? So there's one right down the front in the second row. That's it. Hello, Sarah. Um, you talk about your characters as um, plot devices. Other authors I've heard talk um, say that their characters sometimes develop a life of their own and often take the writer off in um, unexpected directions um, as they develop their own life. Have any of your characters ever surprised you? No. And I, and I, actually, I actually get slightly aggravated. I mean, it's not fair because, you know, the greater writers than me can tell. They're like Flannery O'Connor once said, I woke up one morning and my character had a wooden leg and she had to rewrite this story and insert the wooden leg. You know what that's called? That's called imagination, that is. And so if my characters go off and do unexpected things, it's because my imagination gave them some stuff to do. They, they, I mean, my imagination surprises me. My... Um, kind of uh, working on the novel can open a door that I hadn't seen before. But I, the reason I feel really strongly about this is that the more people talk about writing in those slightly mysterious terms, the, the less people are inclined to think that it's a craft that you can practice and get better at. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I'm so unromantic and dull about the craft and talk about it like wardrobe making, because otherwise access seems just impossible. Um, so I know what people mean. And actually, I think those writers of me actually have the same experience. It's just I say, it's my imagination, and they, they sort of relate to it in a slightly different way. However, with this book, because I was high, I did see characters for the first time in my life. Wow. And so there was one night when I was on goodness knows what, and I woke up, and there was a girl in my bedroom, and she had a white dress and white frilly socks, and black buckled shoes, and long black hair, and she was standing staring at me on the bed. And I absolutely knew she was there, and I couldn't look up and meet her eye, and I absolutely knew there was not a schoolgirl in my bedroom. And I've, I sort of forgot about it until I was writing my essay on pain, by which time the book was, you know, out and about. And in the essay on pain, I write, why did I see her? My book had no use for her. And then someone read a draft of my essay, and they went, that's... Freddie Bayer, and they realised it was a character in the book, and I hadn't made the connection between the two. So I don't know whether I saw her, and then she made her way into the text, or, more likely, I'd written her, and this kind of state of heightened feeling made her appear in my bedroom. But certainly, Melmoth is the only time I've ever really seen them. Uh, question. Someone said you were very quiet up here. <laughs> I'm astonished. <laughs> so so you, um, you trained as a, as a creative... You mentioned a PhD. You trained as a yeah, creative well, writer. Yeah, I did the gothic and creative writing. Yeah, so I did an MA and a PhD. Um, partly because I had no self-confidence, no money, and no self-discipline. And the only way I was ever going to get anything done was if someone made me do it. <laughs> I told you I was lazy, I'm not joking. Um, and I'm really grateful for it because, you know, there's nothing like five years of people thinking you're not very good to make you try harder. <laughs> is there someone over there? Yes, yeah. oh, there is. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure you've had this question every 
best talk you've ever done, but as writers here, what, what are your writing routines? How do you inspire yourself? How do you discipline yourself on a daily basis? <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I don't have one. I basically, <laughs> I do everything I possibly can to avoid writing until the moment when I've got absolutely no choice and then I break my health by writing thousands of words a day. So after me comes the flood, took a really long time because I was doing it for my MA and PhD and it was about eight drafts. But the Essex Serpent was 120,000 words and I wrote it in nine months. And this one I wrote in 10 months while ill. And in between times I do nothing but think and lie in the bath. Mm -hmm. the, only, the only routine I have not that I'm even slightly pretentious, is to light a candle on my desk. And if a candle is lit, I'm doing cr creative writing and not emails or literary criticism or something. Um, and I was so desperate to get Melmoth finished <laughs> that I started buying Jo Malone candles because they're really expensive. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I can't keep funding this book with Jo Malone. <laughs> and it didn't work because I was still refusing to do it unless I absolutely had to. And it got to the stage where the ladies at the Jo Malone counter were going, oh, not finished it then. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> but I, I don't have routine, but what I have is methods to allow myself to write. So on days when I am writing, and they're fairly few and far between, I block the internet with something called freedom, and I block it for 55 minutes. And for those 55 minutes, I put on noise-reducing headphones and listen to ghastly ambient music of, like, dolphins crying in a rainforest um, and write like a maniac for 55 minutes. And then I'll go and watch Netflix for four hours. And then I'll go back to the computer and block the internet for 55 minutes. And I've done one PhD and three novels by that method. So, candle, freedom internet blocking software... And ambient music, is that helpful? <laughs> Sorry. But actually, I hope that's encouraging because so many writers, myself included, get really intimidated by writing tips, particularly mm. the hashtag am writing on Twitter. And you think that you should have a journal that you write in every day and you should do your daily chapter or you should do your 100 days of writing. And you know what? If that works, amazing. But for lots of us, it's 18 months of lying in the bath followed by absolutely manic refusal to even clean your teeth until the book's done. And you just have to find yeah. what works for you, really. I'm, I'm I just do clean my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> just making revisions to next year's student <laughs> handbook. Uh, there's one at the, at the back. <laughs> you said you spent two months in Prague, and that helped you to move away from what you felt might be a bit of a trap of... Yeah. Um, what are your ideas about that in the future? Do you feel that you would be open to the idea of moving completely from your... So, you know, your normal environment, or did you feel that that was enough of a lesson for you to, to, to keep in mind for I, another I book? hope to keep changing what I do. So I very much see Melmoth as the last book in a Gothic trilogy. Um, mm -hmm. I feel that I have plumbed the Gothic to its utmost depths with this book. <laughs> um, I strongly suspect whatever I write will have a Gothic feeling behind it, because it's just the way I engage with the world. But certainly I've got about four books planned. Um, oh. and, um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and basically, it's a strict Baptist work ethic. I'm just fundamentally mm -hmm. mistrustful of any relaxation whatsoever. So um, although I do know writing for a long time, I'm still thinking and planning and cogitating. Um, and so I'm working on something now which will be set in the UK, but in a very different style, very different form. 
Um, and then I'm, I'd like to write about London, about contemporary London. Mm. My elevator pitch is, what if Dickens, but 2018? Do you like that? I couldn't like it more. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, right up my street. Um. So that's what I, I'd like to do eventually. But yeah, I just don't want to tread water. Um, I want to keep, keep moving around, yeah. Mm. Wonderful, thank you. I think the places where we... We grew up, they're, 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 you know, they're both places where you grew up so that you can leave them and move to London. Yes, you know, exactly. It's the, it's the ideal for yeah, particular yeah. parts yeah. of the South East. Uh, we've got time for maybe a, a couple, more, couple more questions. Uh, so one right at the back and then... Um, hi. Hi. Do you have any advice for the aspiring writer who is in chronic pain with no prospect oh, of leaving gosh. it and constantly high oh. on tramadol? I'm so, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. After I wrote that essay for The Guardian, I just had so many people come to me at events and write to me afterwards and talk to me about their pain. And, and I've found it really heartbreaking, actually, because I'm in pain most days, but I don't need strong pain relief anymore. And one woman wrote to me, she had the same operation I did and it failed. And she's just in agony and that's it. It, it didn't work. Um, write about it. That sounds really crass, but... If you have suffered, I honestly think that it's not redemptive in some kind of Christian, feeble Christian way, but it's a little crack in our carapace that we all wear all the time, permitting a degree of empathy, a degree of imagination and insight that people who haven't suffered like us will never know. So I used to be very impatient, for example, if someone was taking a long time at the cash point. Hurry up, what's wrong with you? Now I think maybe they've got arthritis. Maybe their eyesight is failing. And my imagination and my empathy are then tied very strongly together. So as a writer, I think if you are in chronic pain, and it's unavoidable, turning it into not a moral virtue, but an aesthetic and creative virtue is something that's really important. Um, and for God's sake, don't sit down for too long. <laughs> I, I always worry about people's backs. Um, but yeah, my utmost sympathies, I'm so sorry. I really am. Uh, I can't see you. <laughs> Write about that then. <laughs> and things like perspective is really important, you know. Like the way you look at the world from inside a body that is causing you to be constantly engaged with your body is very different from someone else's. So when people say, write what you know, usually that's bad advice because most people are really boring. But if you have <laughs> lifelong conditions that give you an insight into your own body and your own imagination and to the sufferings of others, you, you, you're like instinctively less dull and have instinctively more to say. Um, but mostly, I'm just, it's shit. It's really horrible. <laughs> That's really unfair, isn't it? But it is. It's just not fair. Thank you, Sarah. I think we had, was there another question on this side front. as well? I um, heard something recently about um, the gothic being a genre which is um, particularly useful for feminist fiction, and I was just wondering if that's something that, that you felt, um, whether it, the genre is kind of integral to telling those kind of women's stories. I think it is, yeah, for a number of very interesting reasons. And we were talking about the uncanny earlier and about the quality of the uncanny making the familiar strange. So lots of, lots of uh, gothic fiction is fairly domestic, dealing with family relationships being inverted and sort of turned upside down and made transgressive when they should not be, and also dealing with the interior world of being sort of inside a room or an edifice or a crypt where you're kind of trapped. 
And for so many years, the interior world was the female world. So I have a sort of slight theory that the reason why the Gothic has always been so important for women and so important to kind of the development of feminist thought was because it wasn't battlefields and sieges and great political debates. It was homes or versions of homes and family relationships. And so I suspect it appealed to women for that reason because it was, it was as if they were looking at their own world, but everything all turned upside down and inverted and made more scary. Um, and, you know, one of the great institutionary texts of the Gothic was written by a teenage girl. And that alone is something really important to kind of hold on to, um, that feeling that, that we are not constrained because of our gender, other people attempt to apply a constraint, but it's not intrinsic to who we are. Um, and also, the Gothic is transgressive. Um, I won't bore on about it, even though it's like my favourite subject of all, but um, the, the term Gothic refers to the tribes of Goths and Visigoths that literally dismantled Rome in 410 AD. It's anarchic. It is dangerous, it's transgressive, it's upturning the status quo, having no regard for the rule of law. And that's what feminism has been doing for 150, 200 years. So I think the Gothic speaks to women because it's sort of saying you don't have to accept uh. the status quo. You can turn it all upside down. Yeah. What a wonderful question and a wonderful set Thank of questions. You. Thank you. So um, uh, may I recommend to all of you um, Sarah Perry's wonderful female monster, um, Melmoth. Um, I've been the envy of my, of my friends for having this in advance for the last couple of months uh, to have a, a proof, but the, uh, the, 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 the finished version is, an, is, a, is a beautiful object. And I think is it your, your publishers have reissued Maturin as yeah, well. Yeah, Melmoth too. the Wonder has been reissued with a foreword by me. Great. Talking about how violent it is, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when is Father and Son out? Oh, December. Oh, yeah. yeah. I am. Um, so I've also written the afterword to. I shouldn't call myself lazy, should I? I've I've written the afterword to Edmund Goss's Father and Son, which is being reissued by Vintage. And um, sometimes I tell people that I was born in about 1850 because my upbringing was basically Victorian and Father and Son is an absolutely tragic and hilarious memoir of a boy who was brought up in the 1860s by religious fanatics, basically, um, and of the division that, that came between him and his father. So I've written the afterword to that as well. Oh, that's great. It's a wonderful book. I'd, we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Um, so, um, uh, Sarah will be, uh, will be leaving the North East, uh, sadly, uh, later this evening, um, but has agreed to... Um, to we, are you happy to sign some copies of... I'm very of speedy. Good. So <laughs> OK. I so, can perhaps, if you, could, can. Um, if you could let um, our author get to the back first before you leave the seats... Thank um, ..so you. she can be uh, de-microphoned. But uh, could we uh, thank Sarah again for uh, coming to Durham tonight? Thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast, recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing New North. Writing North. New Writing You're North. listening to a podcast by New Writing North. North.